the idea for this podcast i thought well let's get nick and trev on board because obviously a they both love pop music from all eras but also b because they have diametrically opposite tastes in pop music and this will make for lively and spirited debates for example nick has a particular fondness for romantic piano ballads performed by female singer-songwriters while trev can actually tell the difference between dozens of subgenres of hard dance music, most of which seem to end with the word core. You can therefore imagine my horror at what happened during our last episode when Nick and Trev basically spoke with one voice about all but one of the tracks, and they capped it all by giving identical sets of votes at the end, which left me, Mr. Consensus Man, to be the lone voice of dissent. In fact, I don't think I've heard the sentiment I agree with Nick expressed quite so often since the leadership debates for the 2010 UK general election. When you say about music that ends with the word core, I really like that because that sounds really sweet. But I want to clarify that it's core as in C-O-R-E, not core as in sort of Sid James from a Carry On film. I don't listen to much music that ends in a core, blimey, look at them, darling, type thing. Oh, no. What about the cores? They're, they're a little <laughs> bit both, aren't they? That's more you, Nick, isn't <laughs> oh, it? Okay. Yeah. So, will Nick and Trev's opinions re-diverge during this episode? That is based on the idea that you can actually have sharply diverging opinions about the tracks in this episode, but we'll, more of that later. Before we tackle the extraordinary selection of tunes we've got this time around, let's look at the results from episode four. So I can reveal that after a bit of a tussle during the mid-period of the voting, firmly in last position at the end of it, uh, earning minus one point for the 1980s, that is Mel and Kim rocking around the Christmas tree. The only votes that Mel and Kim earned, if they got any votes at all, were last place votes. Literally nobody put them in their top three. Got a couple of listener comments for you. I remember this from when it came out. Hated it then, and even worse now. All copies should be burned and just donate to Comic Relief instead of listening to it. And somebody else said, you asked if there was a comedy Comic Relief song worth listening to, so I listened to Cliff Richard and the Young Ones, and no. I'm loving the idea of like a Comic Relief record amnesty, where you just hand them in and you give a donation further to Comic Relief, and they get turned into fruit bowls and stuff like that. That's a great idea. In the meh zone. Raksu and Dimolo is fifth. It was neck and neck between Raksu and Mel and Kim, but then in the last couple of days, a couple of people actually placed Raksu in third place. So that lifted them off the bottom. And in fourth place, clearly established all the way through, Dart's Daddy Cool was in fourth place. Comments on Raksu. Uh, number one, I actually really enjoyed this. Forget the haters, made more fun by Nick's frothing extended diatribe. Yeah, I've got to agree with you on that, commenter number one. Commenter number two, we have neighbours who have a lot of parties during the summer and I close the doors and windows when the reggaeton starts because it goes on for hours at that stage, getting louder and louder. And from a distance, it all sounds the same. This is worse than that. On to the comments from Darts. Listen number one said, a first listen, and I thought, 
this is just more tacky 1950s sha na na no thanks then i decided to watch the top of the pops version that was mentioned omg this is wackadoodle over the topness buddy in the silver suit is trying way too hard and i forgive him for it whereas commenter number two simply said dreadful a poor man's shawaddy waddy i just need to clearly distance myself from that last comment it's the other way around shawadi wadi were a poor man's darts still this is your space this is the listener's space it is not for me to intervene i had to say something there into the top three the placings in the top three are, are very clear no closely fought battles it established itself early on and it continued that way so Earning one point for the 2000s, that's Alicia Keys with no one. Somebody said, I too love R&B and I don't get her either. I remember watching her first appearance on Oprah just as Falling was released and agreeing that she was a major talent and wishing her great success. That's the last time I cared or enjoyed anything she's produced. Comment to number two, not one of her best by a long shot, but I am still offended by Mike's dismissal of her because she's not as good live as Beyonce. Very few are. Though I do recall how the Alicia Keys show we went to together left him cold. Well, as I say, this is the space for you, the listener. There are many reposts I could make to that. Dave, commenter number two, but I shall refrain. In second place, this is the highest position that the 1990s have achieved so far. Finally getting a bit of love, thanks to Janet Jackson's Together Again. You both said that having heard Janet Jackson's Together Again, you were going to give it a spin in your next like few nights and stuff, and I just yep. wondered how that went. Okay, I did give Janet Jackson a spin. I didn't give her a spin at peak time. I gave her a spin when I got a few people on the floor, but not many. I can't remember what I mix it in and out of, but I embedded it quite carefully into tunes that I thought wouldn't fail. And yeah, a few people danced and I got a few smiles and nods of recognition. Trev, what happened when you play it? Yeah, likewise, it's not going to be peak time for me. Peak time is, you know, Hoover sounds and lasers and rubbing <laughs> big paper up on your chest. But yeah, sort of early doors. What will I have played it alongside? Stardust music sounds better with you. Superman lovers, Starlight, Mojo Lady. And I've played it twice over the Festivus period. And both times it worked as well as those other tunes do. And those are great, you know, sort of safe records. And I'm a relatively safe DJ, so yeah, definitely ticks my boxes. Only one comment on Janet Jackson, but it's a long one, and it's a good one, I think. This person said, you can hear the smile in her voice. This is a giant hug, and this made me tear up. I had to stop the song briefly and figure out why. I think it's because it was released the year we got married. Our world was so optimistic then. Globally, everything would just get better and better. I can hear all of that in this song, despite its origins. Love and warmth, despite the sadness. But our clear winner, equaling the success of the Jimi Hendrix experience in episode two, is Gene Pitney with Something's Got on the Hold of My Heart, bringing it home once again for the 1960s. Somebody said, this is just a great song on many levels, pure class, but my favourite Gene Pitney homage remains 24 minutes from Tulse Hill, 
by Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. I need to dig that out. I used to love Carter. It was posted in the comments. I saw that. I'm I'm loving the additional listening that we're getting. I think that's great. People posting videos like, if you like that, like this. I will put that on the bonus tracks playlist for this episode. And commenter number two really said, it's an odd song, but the song is almost operatic. Works for me. So there you go. Let's feed those scores into the master scoreboard, see what we come up with. So still in last position and still with minus one point, it's the poor old 2010s dropping to fifth position with a mere two points, the 1970s, rising to fourth position with three points. We have the 1990s. There's no third position because the 1980s and the 2000s both have four points, which puts them in joint second place. However, racing ahead currently with twice as many points as their nearest competitors and suddenly way out in front. There were only joint leaders last time. It's the 1960s with eight points. So let's move on to the new selection of tunes. Once again, I have consulted the Magic Randomizer. And the magic randomizer has given me a year suffix of five and a chart position also of five. So we will be looking at records that are at number five in the charts on the 4th of January. That's the day of recording in 1965, 75, all the way through to 2015. I just need to say something at this juncture. Which decade is Tots of Pops ran for eight or nine years in blog format in the 2000s and i reckon during that time i must have overseen about 90 different rounds in all that time i feel that episode five of the podcast has given us the most shall we say challenging selection i've ever faced in fact it's so challenging i momentarily considered cheating the magic randomizer and doing a respin and then i had a word with myself processes are there to be followed and it's possible that there may be a happy beneficiary of this but i'm, I'm jumping far too far ahead so let's commence with our song from the 60s which is freddie and the dreamers with i understand this was the last of four top 10 hits for freddie and the dreamers Altogether, they had nine top 50 hits between 1963 and 1965. Peaked at this position, number five. And by doing so, it did temporarily arrest their chart decline. Their previous single had only got as far as number 41. The biggest three hits were also their first three hits. The biggest was I'm Telling You Now, which peaked at two. Now, I understand had already been in a top 10 hit in the U.S., for no fewer than three different acts. The original was recorded by the four tunes who had a top 10 with it in 1954, very swiftly followed by a cover from June Valley. Then the song was revived by the G-Clefs in 1961. The G-Clefs version also charted in the UK in 1961, got number 17. 
this G-class version was the first version, A, to add that interpolation of old Lang Syne, which runs all the way through, and B, to add the spoken word section at the end. Trev, let me start with you this time. So this is basically the original version of Cliff Richard's Millennium Prayer. <laughs> like in the modern parlance, we'd call this a mashup. And like most mashups, it just made me want to listen to the original of For Old Lang Syne, which isn't a song that I generally want to listen to, but I, I was like going, oh, I'd probably rather listen to that. Then it made me want to listen to You'll Never Walk Alone, because it really reminded me of that, The certainly the opening bit. Then it made me want to listen to lots of other songs, like almost any other song. I did not want to listen to this. Uh, and I gave it quite a few goes. I think it's got a lovely voice. But like the round singing, it's just a bit too much of a mess for me. Like the first time I listened to it, I was thinking, is something going wrong here? Is this broken? And it's meant to sound like that, which I don't think is a good sign in a song when, you know, you're going, is this meant to sound that way? I've probably listened to this 10 times just in the course of the process for this. And every time I sort of get to a point where I start going, this might not be that bad, actually. Then comes the spoken word bit. And the spoken word bit sounds like Johnny Mathis, When a Child is Born, which came out 10 years later. So maybe this song inspired that. And I, I like that Johnny Mathis song. So maybe this song is responsible for that, which maybe possibly gives it a little bit of a redeem. But honestly, it's still a pretty hard pass for me, this one, I'm afraid. Nick, how about you? My problem with the spoken word bit at the end of the song is that when Johnny Mathis does it in his deep Johnny Mathis voice, it sounds okay. But the problem with Freddie Garrity from Freddie and the Dreamers is that he's from Manchester. So he sounds like George Formby trying to do a spoken word. With, Let bygones be bygones. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you. That's so right. It's so weird. I can't. You can't. I can't. I can't. It's, it's really weird. I agree with Trev. It starts off sounding like it's about to go into Unchained Melody, I think. It's got that sort of ar arpeggio opening. I mean, his voice is fine for a Mancunian milkman, which is what he was before he was Freddy of Freddy and the Dreamers. Apparently, he went to college with my auntie's first husband, Roy. This is the tidbit of information that I have about this. <laughs> We're such a well-connected team, aren't we? Oh, right. I'm beginning to think I need to start asking really, really, really distant relatives. Does anybody know Freddie and the Dreamers? We're all, you know, from like north of Watford. I bet we all are somehow related to Freddie and the Dreamers. Well, my mum grew up in Manchester at this point, right? And he lived in Stretford. So I thought, well, she might know him. Maybe he was me grandma's milkman, you know, at the time or something. But the nearest we could find was he went to college with my uncle Roy. And then it goes into Old Lang Syne, which no song needs to ever, I don't think. Certainly not a pop song. Uh, then I thought, well, let's give some other Freddie and the Dreamers stuff, you know, a bit of a spin. See if that's any good. No, not, not really. No. It's just a shame. In the Rolling Stone history of rock and roll, and I will quote from it directly, if I may, it says, Freddie and the Dreamers represented a triumph of rock and roll as cretinous swill. And I think he was trying to be nice about it. I think that was a positive thing. But, yeah, the opening of Unchained Melody, somebody doing a George Formby voiceover and then it going into all Lang Syne, I think sets the tone for the rest of this episode in many ways. Don't leave! Don't leave, listeners. Stay with us, please. We've got to sit it out. You can too. Um, I do remember Freddie and the Dreamers, but I remember them more from 
the group they became. So there was a children's TV show called Little Big Time. Uh, it's ran between 1968 and 1973. And Little Big Time was hosted by Freddie Garrity of The Dreamers. And Freddie and The Dreamers performed a song on pretty much every episode. So this is a bit like when we were talking about the Rockin' Berries in an earlier episode. I, I think of them as a comedy act rather than purveyors of serious music, which is, I guess, what they were trying to do around about now. Freddie Garrity, I remember him, he sort of presented himself as a happy-go-lucky man-child nincompoop with a very silly way of dancing. And I think that persona was forged at this earlier stage rather than when he pivoted to kids' TV. I think he was always like that, really. I've listened to the preceding three versions of I Understand. Now, the original by The Four Tunes is actually good, I would say. Good, not bad. It's an unadorned doo-wop group. One of the members plays a guitar, rather nice kind of jazzy guitar. I think that's the member who actually wrote the song as well. It was swiftly followed by the June Valley cover. June Valley was just like a light entertainment American TV star of the day. It's the usual thing that take a breakthrough R&B hit and whiten it up and layer on the schmaltz. So it's not as good. Then we get the G-Clef's mashup. That kind of sits between the two because it's a bit doo-wop and it's a bit schmaltzy. Interesting, it was only a hit a couple of years earlier. Well, But again, we've got this thing, this syndrome, a black doo-wop hit, which is succeeded by a more schmaltzy white cover. And again, the white cover is the inferior version. We're all hearing different things from those kind of arpeggio, trippity things in the song. It reminded me, uh, some points of my way, but actually my way had yet to be written. So I'll, I'll give it a pass for that one. Thing is, right, with the Fortunes original, you did feel that the lead singer did actually understand. But you don't get the same feeling with Freddie Garrity at all. Perhaps he just struggled with grown up emotions. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh. I've got a fun fact about Freddie and the Dreamers. Bear with me. Freddie and the Dreamers performed, I understand, on Top of the Pops on the 17th of December, 1964. Also appearing on the same episode was Sandy Shaw, who was performing her current hit, Girl Don't Come. Right. Girl Don't Come was Sandy Shaw's follow-up hit to Always Something There to Remind Me, which had reached number one earlier in the year. Fast forward, if you will, to 1983, when the synth pop cover version of Always Something There to Remind Me was a big international hit for a duo called Naked Eyes. One member of Naked Eyes was Rob Fisher, who later joined another hit-making duo called Climby Fisher. Hang on a minute. Is my screen backwards? Because is this Nick talking? Because, like, you've just worked for 28 <laughs> minutes to get to a Climbing Fisher reference. What's happening? Every episode is turning into one of these Kevin Bacon things where we have to get to Climbing Fisher by the weirdest. It's like th it's like paid three, two, one. You in a dusty bin. <laughs> you would not believe how long it took me to get a Climbing Fisher connection when I could have been doing other things this afternoon, like having a nap. I was watching your face for clues there, Nick. I thought when we get on to always something there to remind me, I thought Nick was going to be, I see where he's going because it's Naked Eyes, which is Rob Fisher. But you you maintained 
impassivity throughout. I, I've got, I guess, what would come under other business arising from remarks that have been given. Now, first of all, it dawns on me that Freddy and the Dreamers could be the name of a band based around the Nightmare on Elm Street films because Freddy Krueger comes to you in dreams, doesn't he? That's how that works. And I thought, I mean, pretty harsh when you refer to him as a happy-go-lucky mad child nincompoop who dances badly. You could be referring to the most recent president of America with that description. That's And that's worked out pretty well for that guy as a persona. I think you're a bit harsh, Mike. I think you should let bygones be bygones. <laughs> I think he's got a better voice than you guys give him credit for. This may well be off the record, but um, I used to watch a little big time every week. I'm a big fan of the, the man child and Kampoo. One week, Fred and the Dreams formed a song called Short Shorts, which was one of their latest singles that didn't chart. And to illustrate the song lyrically, as the band performed the song Short Shorts, Freddie Gary went round every member of the band and pulled down their trousers, revealing a pair of short shorts underneath on a children's show on a children's show it was just a gloriously innocent time wasn't it i I still remember the camera cutting to the audience of children who were shocked and hysterical at the same time like me they couldn't believe what they were seeing i was about 10 let's move on to the 70s with Elvis Presley and My Boy. This was the 49th of 53 top 10 hits that Elvis Presley had during his lifetime, because after his death, he had another 23 posthumous top 10 hits. During his lifetime, he had 16 number one hits and another five posthumous number ones. My Boy, uh, like the track before it, peaked at this position. Number five, it was Elvis Presley's first UK top 10 since Always On My Mind, exactly two years earlier. It was originally written in French and recorded by Claude François in 1970. Its original title was Parce que je t'aime mon enfant, which translates as Because I Love You, My Child. It was then translated into English by Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, who were best known for Puppet on the String and Congratulations, the Eurovision songs, and for various hits, the Bay City Rollers. And it was recorded by the actor... Richard Harris in 1971. That's Richard Harris who did the original of MacArthur Park. Nick, my boy. Well, it's really interesting that you talked about how that Freddie and the Dreamer song reminded you of My Way. What you may not know is Claude Francois, who wrote the original Pasque Je T'aime Mon Enfant, also wrote a song called Comme d'habitude, which you may or may not know, which is the original French version of My Way, which was translated into English by Paul Anker uh, and became obviously Frank Sinatra's tune. So the writer of this song for Elvis also wrote My Way. There you go. So there's a little circular loop for you. I've listened to quite a bit of Claude Francois over the last few days, who did the original French version of this. It is magnificent in that late 60s slightly overproduced brassy french pop music style it sounds like something you would have heard jack brell do and then maybe have heard scott walker do a little bit later it's got that sort of sound it is so good the french original of my way is terrific it just gets better and better as he goes along he really means it i know that the translation doesn't keep the same message the original of my ways about the end of a relationship rather than looking back perhaps over the end of your life but he 
just i would urge anybody will stick it on the extras to listen to the original french version it is absolutely magnificent claude francois described as the beatles of france essentially in the 60s he was absolutely massive star like you said translated into english by the songwriting team behind congratulations and recorded during what i think we could call elvis's sort of vegas phase he was more popular in the uk at this stage of his career than in the US. He'd experienced something of a revival in the UK in the in the kind of mid-70s. Other than the fact that the lyrics are a little bit odd in the sense that he never had a boy, Elvis. I mean, I know that doesn't prohibit him singing about all sorts of things, but he sings it in a very heartfelt way. It doesn't make much lyrical sense coming from him in that respect. But I actually really like this era of Elvis. I like the big orchestral sort of latter period of the Elvis catalogue. I know that it's, is it cheesy? It's not pushing any musical boundaries in any way, but I really like it. I mean, whatever you think about Elvis, he can perform a song. He could sing anything and it would sound fabulous. The story goes that he actually was so emotional singing this that he couldn't finish the take of the recording. They had to loop I think, part of the vocal to make the full song that he just broke down during the recording of it and couldn't finish because he felt so emotional about the lyrical content, which, like I say, is weird for him, but it is a very powerful song about a man who is staying in a loveless relationship for the sake of his child. It's not pushing any boundaries, but I genuinely do love this. And the original is also fantastic. Trev? I'm a bit conflicted on this because I freely admit I'm not a relationship counsellor, but I think the concept of sticking together for the kids hasn't aged particularly well potentially the sequel to this is the song broken home by papa roach which i wholeheartedly recommend you listen to weirdly for me like most of elvis's like vegas i guess his comeback era stuff i don't really know but the ones that i do know you've got in the ghetto which is an absolute banger about extreme poverty and then there's suspicious minds about you know the heartbreak when trust is gone from a relationship and then there's this light-hearted tune about crushing sorrow and misery and they're all performed in sequins with a big band flourish which i i do just find a bit weird because like you see that image of sweaty elvis in the 70s and i expect him to be doing show tunes not oh this is so sad it is really so 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 sad this song the real conflict for me is this it's got a really catchy hook and i want to sing this to my boy and I'd have to completely re-record it. And I've got twins as well. So like, if I sang this to my boy, you're all I have, my boy, I think that would be hugely damaging psychologically to his sister. I mean, ultimately, it's Elvis, isn't it? Sonically, it's huge. And it definitely moves me. I am, however, hoping there's an easier Elvis song to come along. I'm sure, like, you know, over the coming, however long we do this for, there will be. I think the Elvis... The man singing this, if you like, it's not Elvis, he didn't have a son, but the character singing this probably needs to get some counselling. I think it is a very moving song. I don't know that the sentiments age particularly well, but you can't say it's bad. It's a good piece of music. This is the only one I actually own a physical copy of. I I didn't go to shop and buy it myself. Well, I bought it as part of a job lot, which is now up for sale on Discogs. I'm currently asking £3.95 for it, and if that sounds a bit high, it's because the copy that I've got of the 7-inch is a US version, 
that were specially pressed for export to the UK market as there was a strike going on in the UK and they were running out of copies of homegrown pressings. So they had them shipped over from the States. This is an almost unique situation with an RCA single. It's gutting because it's been on sale for about three years and the average selling price on Discogs is about a tenner and the people won't even give me £3.95 for it. Sold. Sold. I'll have it. Oh, no, you won't. I was going to say, I'll have it. I'll give you £3.95 for it. <laughs> £3.97. £4. Oh, God. £4.03. £4.12. £4.12? It's ridiculous. I'm out. You can do your bidding via a messenger window if you like. Honestly, flash man. They're just like, oh, £4.12. La-di-da. Um, yeah. I've listened to the Claude Francois version. I think it's definitely better. We're back to the same situation where they understand, I suppose. I also slightly prefer the Richard Harris version to the Elvis version. But I will give major props to Elvis Presley's people because they did actually have the good grace to restore the original French part of the songwriting credit on the label of the single. For the Richard Harris version, Martin and Coulter just completely erased the French credit and made out they'd written the song from scratch, which is just not cricket. Interesting to hear Nick discovering Claude Francois. I was aware of Claude Francois at an early age. I used to go and stay with a French family every Easter. And Easter 1970, I was watching a French uh, light entertainment show. Claude Francois was the special guest. And the audience went berserk, like Beatlemania-style berserk. And the French family I was staying with said, ah, yes, this is this is Claude Francois. He, he's very popular here in France. So I was very aware. He came to an untimely end in the late 70s while trying to change a light bulb in the bath. It went horribly wrong. What he did also, I mean, we've talked about this being the English translation of a French song. What Claude Francois did, he had a lot of hits with a French translation of an English song. He would just rewrite the lyrics for... He did a lot of Motown stuff. It is C'est la même chanson was the same old song. So he just used to translate English songs into French and have massive hits over there. There was a lot of it about, I think there was actually some quota system on French radio about the amount of music you could play in tongues other than French, which meant there was always a thriving market in recording uh, English songs into French, like Sheena Easton's 9 to 5 became L'amour c'est comme une cigarette. I wasn't expecting to tell you that, but I just have. Yeah, known as Clo-Clo by his fans was Claude Francois. Clo-Clo. I find my boy quite hard to listen to, actually. I think it's probably because 18 months earlier, July 1973, my father did actually come into my bedroom one evening and he told me that he and my mother were going to get a divorce. So you've got Elvis Presley, who ultimately decides not to tell his son because he's going to stay married. Um, my father, well, he had no choice because it was my mother who was leaving. So as schmaltzy as it is, I do find my boy a bit triggering, if I'm going to be honest. One of the side effects of a parent's divorce is that aged 11, I started hearing sad songs on the radio in a different way. Up, up until then, I'd been a happy little boy. I'd, I'd hear a sad song and I thought, oh, yeah, the sad bit boring. When are we going to hear the sweet? But from that point onwards, I realised that sad songs could actually relate to everyday life in a horribly poignant way. And I used to get regularly ambushed by hearing them on the radio. That said, unlike 
every other record in this particular 1975 top 10, all of which I could sing you at least the chorus of from memory. I have absolutely no memory of my boy whatsoever. I'm beginning to think maybe I just blotted it out. It, all of this makes it hard for me to evaluate the record objectively. I'm heartened to find that both of you found it moving because that makes me feel it's not just me being weirdly triggered. There is some genuine emotional content to this record. You could say it was sentimental slop at his treacliest, but I do have an emotional response to it. And like the both of you, I really do like Las Vegas period, early 70s Elvis. My favourite being I Just Can't Help Believing from 1972, which is absolutely magnificent. Let's move forward to... The 80s. This is The Toy Dolls with Nelly the Elephant. This was the only top 40 hit for The Toy Dolls. It peaked at number four. It was actually a re-recording of an earlier single of theirs, which had been originally released in December 1982. This version, the 1984 version, also reached number one on the UK indie chart. The Toy Dolls were the first act ever to play on Channel 4's Friday evening music show, The Tube, in November 1982. I remember watching it. An odd choice, you might think, but it makes more sense when you realise that the band were from Sunderland and The Tube was recorded in nearby Newcastle. Nella the Elephant was originally recorded in 1956 by Mandy Miller, who was 12 years old at the time. And the Mandy Villa version was played regularly for many years on various children's radio programmes, particularly Ed Stewart's Junior Choice on Saturday mornings. It was covered by Black Lace in 1987 and by Lulu in 1989. Lulu did a version because she played Nelly the Elephant in an animated TV series of the same name. Trev, Nelly the Elephant. So... Us DJs, we like music that has a good build-up, like the breakdown and build-up. If you think of like most trance records, it sort of goes, without sort of going too much into the terminology of it, kind of goes quiet and then it builds up and builds up. And then like with trance music, you get a drum roll. And then sometimes there's four big crashes and it goes and oh, the club goes mental and the confetti cannons go off. And sort of in, I guess, the last 20 years, that's started to be referred to as the drop. And I think in music, this is probably the ultimate <laughs> drop of all time. I can't think of a bigger drop than this. That music's subjective, but for me, this song is pure Blackpool Young Farmers Weekend that is a gig that I do every year. It's ridiculous. And this is one of their weird tunes that they really like. And there's some DJs who play this genuinely at the Young Farmers Weekend every 45 minutes. I do it once in a set, but they all crouch down. It's a bit like Slipknot do this in a live show, but not with Nelly the Elephant, with the Slipknot song. The streets do it. Everybody goes low. You go low. And then as it goes, whoa, and it's all, there's always someone who has to stand up too soon and stand around in the middle, but everybody's low, low, low. And then, whoa. And as it goes, everybody jumps up and pandemonium in shoes every time. It's really scary to watch, but it is something else to watch. I think this is ridiculous, straightforward party music. I just think it's great. It's, it's absolutely preposterous but why not in the top of the pops performance that i watched to this the bass player looks like bono and rather than you know like 
research this you know like i don't know nick would i just choose to believe this is actually bono's fun side i think it's a lot of fun full full thumbs up from me it is bono is it bono no no it's not <laughs> <laughs> of course it's not bono oh what a shame oh bono cheer up did you find it fun nick i i do remember it being a staple of a school disco at this time I can't recall, but I do think we used to do the same crouch jumping up thing. But then it is slightly different when you're 12. So I don't really have anything to say about this. I think it's absolutely preposterous. My main question is why? Just why would you do this? I have a couple of facts. The original 1956 version was produced by George Martin off of the Beatles. And it used to, before staying alive, it used to be the song that they used to do to teach people the rhythm of giving CPR. It had the right beat in it to give people CPR. So you should try that. Next time you're giving some CPR, don't don't sing Staying Alive, sing Nelly the Elephant. People will think you're potty. You better not do the drop. That way cardiac arrest lies. Lying on a pavement in a town centre going, Nelly the Elephant, back to drunk and sick. <laughs> As you're trying to revive an old lady. The drop is where you do the faith healing bits. Rise up. I had a look. I mean, I assumed, quite wrongly it turns out, that it was the only top 40 hit with the word elephant in it. But it turns out there are others. (laughs) Would you like to know what the others are? So Alexandra Burke and Eric Murillo, I don't think it'll be the last mention of Eric Murillo, had a hit with Elephant. Cyril Stapleton's Elephant Tango from 1955. Walking with Elephants. I had to listen to this. 2014, a Lithuanian producer called Ten Walls. The Boomtown Rats had The Elephant Graveyard, 1981, and The Stone Roses' Elephant Stone. And I can also confirm that there have been no top 40 hits with either Hippo or Hippopotamus, Rhino or Rhinoceros, Giraffe or Zebra. So Elephant is very much the African animal du jour when it comes to a hit. Okay, I went and had a look at the rather prickly biog that the toy dolls have posted to spotify um and i'm going to quote some of it because um well you'll see why slated by the british music press for being a joke one hit wonder band and being on a par with the tweets the grumbleweeds the barren nights and the wurzels here we are after 40 years 13 studio albums dozens of best of albums live albums box sets and more importantly the 40 years of constant worldwide live tours shows and festivals playing to packed houses from buenos aires to budapest strangely enough the band are not influenced by any of the above mentioned acts exclamation mark continues at some length they've kind of made a rub for their own backs though because they toy dolls are basically a comedy punk band always have been always will be i'm not personally opposed to comedy punk cover versions and i think i know where the toy dolls got the idea from to answer your question nick there were a band before them an american band called the dickies and the dickies specialized in comedy punk versions of unlikely tunes they had a hit with their cover of the banana splits theme tune and they had a christmas single which was um a double a side of silent night and um the simon and garfunk was the sound of silence they did the comedy punk version of moody blues nights in white satin that's i think the scene the toy dolls 
were trying to mine. I sort of thought this was okay at the time. I have consulted my personal chart for the week in question, compiled on the 29th of December, 1984. And I find that Nelly the Elephant was that week a new entry at number 28. It dropped out the following week, never to return. Um, in contrast, the Dickies version of the Banana Splits theme tune topped my personal chart in 1979. I thought you were about to tell us that the um, Toy Dolls were one of the greatest new wave and punk bands of the <laughs> late 70s and early 80s there, Mike, to be honest, just behind the darts. <laughs> I think it was a wise choice. No, the elephant. The toy dolls are my age, almost to the month. And we all had memories of hearing Mandy Miller's original Nell of the Elephant on Ed Stewart's junior choice all the way through our early years. So you've got that childhood nostalgia angle. And just the whole idea of doing a punk version was enough to raise at least a brief smile. It's interesting you talked about the Young Farmers Nights. My abiding memory of this was student discos in Nottingham in late 84, early 85, usually at the Irish Social Centre. This was the cue for all the rugby lads who didn't know how to dance to hit the dance floor en masse so that they could do the bits. And now, because I don't feel the song has worn very well, and I don't find it particularly fun anymore, it's the it's the bits that annoy me the most. I'm wondering whether if the Beatles hadn't been able to afford an orchestra when they were recording Sergeant Pepper, they might have had to do something similar to this in the middle of a day in my life. Can you imagine it? Ooh, woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. We've been spared. On the first Kaiser Chiefs album, do they credit the Toy Dolls for all the woes that there are on the Kaiser Chiefs album? Because without the woes, I don't think the Kaisers would have been that big. Uh, something for the Toy Dolls to add to their lengthy Spotify biog. Do you think it was the inspiration behind Robbie Williams's The Road to Mandalay? I don't know that one. Is Mandalay in Hindustan, by the way? Or are they just being fast and loose with their atlases? Well, I found the word Hindustan slightly racist. Is it not a real place? Because if it's not a real place, that is racist, then. I don't think it's a place. I don't think Hindustan is a place. I think Mandalay might be. Well, she's leaving the circus for love, isn't she? Because she, she met the head of the herd far, far away on the road to Mandalay. So she's slipping her chains of bondage and trumpety trumping off to Hindustan there to meet her beloved. Maybe Nelly the Elephant has a shaky grasp of um, the Atlas. On Google, there is a Hindustan Times and a Hindustan Ambassador. So I think Hindustan's a real place. It was the Persian word for India. There you go. So if it's the Persian word for India, we're now saying that Nelly the Elephant was was set about 100 years before it was written. It's now a historical thing. It was set in the 1850s. Oh, Tales of the Raj. It's it's a learning experience. It's giving you, listening to this song gives you not only a feel for the wider animal wildlife world, you also get history, you see. It works on many levels. I think you're, you're, you're not appreciating this as much as you should. Let's move on to the... <laughs> This is Them Girls, Them Girls by Zig and Zag. This was the first and biggest of two hits for Zig and Zag in the UK. Uh, peaked at this position, the follow-up only reached number 21. Zig and Zag were voiced by two Irishmen, uh, Kieran Morrison and Mick O'Hara. They were a pair of alien puppet twins from the planet Zog. 
and they've been popular on Irish TV since 1987 before transferring to Channel 4's The Big Breakfast in 1992. They'd already scored two number one hits in Ireland with The Christmas Number One, that's the actual title of the record, and Zigzagging. But in 1994, Simon Cowell signed them to RCA Records. Now, if you are thinking that Them Girls, Them Girls bears a strong resemblance to Reel to Reel's I Like to Move It, Move It, that is because it was produced and co-written by the same person, namely Eric Marillo, the American DJ and producer who died in 2020. Trev did not know that, I can see. I was looking forward to telling him that bit. Uh, Nick, let's start with you. Okay, I have a slight theory about this and about Nelly the Elephant. The week after Christmas, certainly in the last maybe 30 years, has been, as far as the top 40 is concerned, an absolute shambles. It's a bit the same now. I mean, this next week's charts... I got all the Christmas songs, which for I think there were 30 something, 33 or 34 Christmas songs in the top 40 this week will disappear. So the top 40, the week after Christmas, is always incredibly unpredictable. I remember Iron Maiden's Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter went straight in at number one, I think, the week after the Christmas chart, because people buy records in the run up to Christmas, or historically that's what they've done. They bought the Christmas songs, they bought the whatever. That stops. People stop buying records because they don't have to gift anything to any more. So what happens is you get this residual who is buying records immediately after Christmas in that week. And it throws up some incredibly weird stuff. And this is my theory for Nelly the Elephant Zig and Zag being in the top five at this point that I'm not sure it would have necessarily happened at other points in the year. I think there is this sort of vacuum immediately after Christmas that can be filled with all sorts of weird stuff. This is my theory. As for Zig and Zags, them girls, them girls, I mean, like you say, it is essentially they like to move it, move it, sung by a puppet doing a terrible, what I believe it sounds to me like an Apache Indian impression. It's got a whiff of the boom shakalak about it in a way that I'm not entirely convinced is culturally appropriate. The novelty of it wears off incredibly quickly. It starts with, you know, them girls, them girls, they all love me. And you're like, oh, you know, and the video's got the puppets in and stuff. But after about 30 seconds of it, it does nothing else for its entire duration. By the end of it, you just want to, honest to God, pull your ears off. In the early 90s, almost anything could get in the charts, couldn't it? You know, Mr. Blobby. The Teletubbies, Bob the Builder, you know, almost anything you could get a record out of. I mean, obviously, Simon Cowell knew that. And it, it seems to me like the peak, what in God's name, we're going to take two puppets off breakfast television and think we can monetize that somehow with a record. It just has a whiff of the rolling rat about it. Who obviously did Love Me Tender, going back to Elvis, and it was lovely. Uh, a double A side, the Pink Bucket song, which is even better than Love Me Tender. We steered slightly off topic. No, no, we're on breakfast TV puppets, aren't we? <laughs> I'm bringing it back to breakfast TV puppets. So, no, I do re obviously recall this from the time, uh, but I don't think it's aged very well, and it's incredibly annoying. Okay. Trev, have you, have you recovered sufficiently from the shock of finding out that Eric Murillo was, wrote this record to offer some comments on it? At the top of the show, you 
express disappointment that me and Nick didn't disagree very much in the last show. And I have, I have sat there with mounting dismay and horror listening to the preposterous nonsense that Nick has just spoke. <laughs> oh, come off it. Oh, no. Oh, this is what we want. No, if you'll let me finish, if you'll <laughs> let me finish. Right. First of all, he said, well, in the early 90s, in this 1995. Yeah, he also said Bob the Builder, which is 2000. Yeah, it's not the early 1990s. That's the mid-1990s. It's not the early 1990s. So you've undermined yourself completely. And then these guys were huge on the Big The Big Breakfast was um, a whopping programme. It wasn't like just breakfast TV. It was like it was culturally a very very big thing and i'm not just saying this because i was on the big breakfast all right Ooh. it genuinely was massive was the big breakfast and zig and zag were a big part of it now in your defense the uh cultural appropriateness of it is really questionable i've not even gone into my notes and i believe with apologies in advance this is the most that i've ever written for any of these songs that we've dealt with so far so for me the most interesting thing about this is that they were called Zig and Zag. But lyrically, when you listen to this, it's Zag, or the Zagamuffin, as he preferred to be known, is the one spitting the most bars, dropping the most verses, and really spraying the most lyrical dexterity here. Zig is, in many ways, just along for the ride. And if you think of, like, most songwriting duos, Simon and Garfunkel, Lennon and McCartney, Fats and Smalls, Rogers and Hammer Time, it was the one whose name came first that tended to do the most work. And that's clearly been shown. They've broken the mould is what they've done. I really rate this. I think this is like one of the early moments where novelty songs start to sound really, really well made. It came from the England New Order football song. That was like the first novelty song that was really well made. This is really, really well made. But I think... For actual music, the production aside, you know, novelty songs being good could be traced directly back to, for example, the Toy Dolls. Now, I have written here, this is where the wheels come off a little bit. This is sonically very, very similar to what Real to Real were doing. Now, we've talked about Real to Real in the past, and because it was Real to Real and the Mad Stuntman, the Mad Stuntman was the rapper. I can't separate Real to Real from Eric Murillo. He was a terrible person. The Mad Stuntman, however, wasn't. I kind of feel in the same way. I, can you separate Zig and Zag from Eric Murillo? Eric Murillo is really grim. And I was going to start playing this instead of Real to Real because it does sound exactly the same. I'm not going to. I I play 15 seconds of Real to Real and it is just the Mad Stuntman going, I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Eric Murillo did the instrumental. I don't play him. I definitely did own this at the time, but I couldn't find it. So I've gone and bought it again and now we move on to page two because <laughs> i'm i am not done now i always feel that uh nick shows me up with actual researching and stuff like that and so i i decided to play him at his own game here and i've actually researched this next bit so let's let's see how it performs with our listenership are you aware of the term mandem yes do you know the term mandem kind of never been able to use it with confidence uh, it's a well-used piece of sort of street lingo these days it emerged into the uk vernacular in the noughties but where did mandem come from it means those men or more literally them men and in the less used but still correct feminine counterpart, it's girl them, those girls. For example, gal them, 
or Gals Dem. If you want to hear Gals Dem in action, listen to Mandy Dextrous and Vandal, the Gals Dem Sugar, which is possibly my favourite hardcore tune of 2022, if it actually came out in 2022. My research was so focused on Zig and Zag, I didn't have time to check whether or not that song came out that year. But I have genuinely, meticulously searched high and low for the emergence of Dem Man or Dem Girls lyrically in any songs prior to Zig and Zag, and I cannot find one. So, listeners, please let me know if I'm wrong, but I'm going to posit that Zig and Zag were the first people to say them girls, which over time became dem girls, then girl dem, which then is where mandem sprang from. And I believe that is the etymology of the word mandem coming directly from Zig and Zag. So, there you go. That's all I have to say on what I think is a really, really good novelty record, apart from the Eric Murillo bit. It's a bold claim. I do have a follow-up question. You you just casually dropped the little factoid that you were on The Big Breakfast. Do expand. Yes, I was on The Big Breakfast. They used to have regular recurring features, and one of them was a bit where it was two people who had an argument, and in my salad days as a DJ, I did a 70s show. I used to perform as Bobby Dazzler, and I wore a Tina Turner wig and star-shaped glasses. It was a little bit Rod Stewart, a little bit Elton John, and I used to have an American accent, and everything was, oh my lord! And there was another DJ called Bobby Dazzler. Now, he was a really professional, cheesy DJ. And he was like, we can use this. We can get on TV with this. And we were on The Big Breakfast. They had to decide who got to keep the name Bobby Dazzler. And honestly, I smashed it out of the park. And uh, we had The Big Breakfast over filming at some of my nights. And that was great because like the first week of me working at a nightclub, I took in The Big Breakfast film crew and they were like, what? what and so on a thursday night which would have taken me months to build up from you know one man and his dog to sort of two three hundred people was a regular thing and yeah the first week 250 people in on a thursday night because the big breakfast was there and they kept coming back in many ways it bought me my house in the country <laughs> my bobby does the thing so there you go Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I'll be back, because I stopped listening yeah. when I heard Zig and Zag and Simon and Garfunkel in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> when we started this series, I had not foreseen that the invisible hand of Simon Cowell would be quite such a recurring theme in these episodes. But here we are again, several years before The X Factor. Once again, his flicking through his address book. Somehow, he's landed no lesser person than Eric Murillo, who was then a respected name in US house music, and he got him into work his magic on a load of old bollocks by two Irish extraterrestrial puppets. It takes some doing, actually. I mean, Simon Cowell wasn't even a household name at that stage, so he must have pulled some strings. In the last episode... Some, pulled some strings! I know, the moment it left my mouth. <laughs> the moment it left my mouth. They weren't that kind of puppet. They were up-the-bum puppets. They weren't puppets from the top. <laughs> Right, so last time round, we were talking about Raksu, four lads from Watford, being persuaded by Simon Cowell to pretend they came from Latin America. And I leapt to their defence and I said I was basically okay with most forms of cultural appropriation. Well, we've all got to draw the line somewhere. I'm drawing it here with white Irishmen 
possibly being persuaded by Simon Cowell to pretend to be ragamuffin rappers and basically adopting comedy blackface voices. Not cool. Now, you could argue that Eric Murillo was also a person of colour and he seemed to be okay with it. But then, as it transpires, Eric Murillo was okay with a lot of very dodgy practices. We can't exactly hold him up as a moral arbiter here. We are left to plot our own moral course. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too prim and I'm too woke. But if I'd been, maybe if I'd been a lot younger in 1995, I'd be one of the people leaving comments under the YouTube video, such as, and I'll quote a few of them, my word, I still love this song in 2018. It was cool then and still is now. I love the deep beat in it. And hey, if I could go back to the 90s, I'd be there in a flash. Or gotta love the 90s, a very different world than it is today. Music today has no get up and go feeling to it. Today is extremely dull compared to the colourful 90s. Someone else said, Bought this when it came out, still better than most of the waste in the charts now. Someone else said, bring back Zig and Zag to liven up these depressing. Anyone agree? Well, that guy's not paying attention because Zig and Zag have repeatedly come back. So there's absolutely no way that Simon Cowell influenced them to do this. Zig and Zag were a big children's thing in Irish TV. And yeah. uh, Channel 4 went, that's what we want for the big breakfast. And then they have come back relatively recently. They've been back within the last three years. They have. And I think they've teamed up with the other comedy Irish puppets of note, Dustin the Turkey who once represented Ireland at Eurovision. He's not done by the same guy, is he? Because those guys have got another big duo, haven't they? Oh, Nick, Nick knows this. Research, Nick. Here it comes. No, no, I was just thinking, how could he do Dustin the Turkey and Zig and Zag? He's only got two hands, hasn't he? He couldn't do them all simultaneously, could he? You could get like a stunt hand. I'll give you one more YouTube comment. Play this at my funeral and I'll be forever at peace. I like to think that was sincerely meant. In their defence... <laughs> I can't believe I'm about to say this. The voice in which they sing them girls is just the voice they used to do, isn't it? They haven't put on a specific voice for the singing. No, when they were talking, it wasn't with any sort of patois and the style of the music. This is the only sort of shred of, you know, you, could, you might get away with it. Right then, here come... With You Can Do It by Ice Cube featuring Mac 10 and Muz Toy. This was the last of four top 40 hits for Ice Cube between 1993 and 2005. It was by far his biggest hit. It peaked at number two. His previous chart peak had uh, been a mere 22. It had been originally released in November 1999, and at that point it became also his last top 40 in the USA. But it didn't chart in the UK until this re-release back in 2004. Uh, Ice Cube first found fame as a member of NWA. He wrote most of the lyrics on their debut album, Straight Outta Compton. He's also enjoyed a highly successful parallel career as an actor and film producer. He's appeared in over 40 movies to date and although you'd never guess it from many of his lyrics he has been happily married for the past 30 years to kim woodruff with whom he has had four children that's kim woodruff not to be confused with kim woodburn the noted household hygiene expert treff 
Ice Cube. Uh, so Ice Cube made one of my favourite hip-hop albums of all time, The Predator. And whilst the title to that hasn't aged particularly well, it's a really, really good gangster rap album. Obviously, he's a member of NWA, so he's he's a legitimate original gangster. But equally, you know, man's got to get paid, and I don't mind that. I don't buy into phrases like, you know, sell out unless you live in a squat. And I think this is Ice Cube having a payday. This is an okay song. The worst thing about this is what it helped to usher in, usher, no pun, that being the gangster rap R&B crossover sort of sound of people like Usher and 50 Cent. This was when kind of gangster rap stopped being bad and started being either about sex or about how big the chains were or how big the car was or how much money they had. And that's a pretty crap legacy, but and you can't really lay all that at the door of Ice Cube just because of this one song. In 1999, when this was made, this actually will have been a relatively new sound. By the time it became a hit, there was loads of other stuff around like this. And, you know, stuff that I don't think has aged particularly well. But then I'm so old, I remember rap being about being bad and you know when it stopped being about that it just got a little bit naffer for me but this is this is fine it's, it's produced well enough uh you know syllabalistically he, he nails it it's it's smut isn't it but in a club having a bit of a dance and you know feeling sexy there's nothing wrong with this uh whatsoever i sense nick's opinion may diverge in certain subtle ways from Trev's. Am I right? Well, I I do like the fact that we've all reached the age where we can call Ice Cube's lyrics smut. (laughs) (laughs) I did enjoy that immensely because it is smut. Let's be honest. I actually, bizarrely, enjoyed the Straight Outta Compton film enormously, but I'm not a fan of NWA or, or this style of music at all. But when this came up on the list, I thought, oh, I know that. I vaguely remembered it as a sort of, is it rap? I don't know, whatever it is, hip-hop rap spectrum. Yes, Nick, it is, it is rap. It's rap, right. Okay, so, so the, I recalled it being at the pop end of the rap spectrum, and I thought, oh, well, this might be all right. So I put it on. My 18-year-old daughter was in the house at the same point. I went to make a cup of tea, and I turned around at one point. She went, God, is this still going? <laughs> and in many ways, that's how I feel about it, that for about 10 seconds of it, where he's doing the, you know, you could do it, put you back into it. I was like, oh, this is all right, this. But, oh, my God, four minutes later, I was just like, I had to turn it off. And all of the other songs I've listened to repeatedly, apart from this one, because I just can't face the prospect of having it go on for another 25 minutes, which is what it felt like again. So my recollection of it was wrong in many ways that I thought, oh, it's a nice rap pop song and actually i found it intensely annoying i'm sure it's great and i'm sure ice cube is great and i've his film that he's in is great and he seems nice and i like him i'll let you guys talk about it because you know a lot more about this style of music than i do but it's absolutely just not not for me okay well i know i've, I've got a decent working knowledge of the history of hip-hop but not such a decent knowledge of the history of ice cube I'm aware that he is a revered figure in hip-hop, and it did come as a real surprise to discover he barely had any hit singles, either here or in the US. He has some massive-selling albums in the US, but hit singles didn't really happen. I knew him best for an earlier single, It Was A Good Day, and I did actually buy that on single in 1993. This one, You Can Do It, it got to number two. It was only kept off number one by Band Aid 20's Do They Know It's Christmas?, Totally, completely passed it by at the time. Uh, Not aware of it at all. And I have absolutely no idea 
why it was reissued at the back end of 2004, five years later. And I've looked and looked and looked. Trev, do you happen to know this? So it was on the Next Friday soundtrack. And those types of films are generally watched by the stoner community, really. You know, you sit and get loaded watching it. So that might have been why it was a slow percolation through. There's also Ice Cube was on the Family Values Tour, which was with bands like Limp Bizkit, so there was a rock rap crossover stained like a sort of almost grunge band or on those types of things. And those again, took a while to come over for, to the UK. Uh, there were videos uh, of songs from that tour that got big in the UK a couple of years later. So it may have been that I remember seeing a video of Ice Cube performing this song in the States, at a big hip hop concert. And he went, did everybody see my, uh, he referred to it as waste, which is, uh, what they say when they mean something's good uh, not bad meaning bad but bad meaning good and he said did anybody see my waist next Friday and everybody went mental and then he played that song and so it, I think it came via that film and then I think we're still at the point where there was a delay between things being big in America and things being big here and so it took a while to seep over and it was like the mid noughties was when R&B was taking over the nightclubs, uh, hip hop and R&B. And so I guess from DJs, because this was still hip hop, so you could play it. You're not an R&B DJ, but the girls would dance to it. So I think that's probably why it was a slow percolation. That is an explanation that I could not find online for all my efforts. So thank you for that. Now, Ice Cube, yeah, I can acknowledge is, is important, hugely important and influential figure. I do lament the influence that he had on hip hop. Obviously, that first NWA album is a classic of the genre. But for me, I was massively into hip hop in the late 80s. For me, it took hip hop in the wrong direction. It effectively spawned gangster rap with all the misogyny, materialism, glorification of violent crime that came in its wake. And it did so just when Public Enemy and De La Soul were offering very different signposts for hip-hop to follow. But the bigger signpost turned out to be NWA and Ice Cube. I've listened, I've dropped in and out of various Ice Cube tracks over the last few days without doing some kind of chronological listening. These are just the ones that popped up. Let's just say they haven't exactly prompted a re-evaluation of his craft the usual defences for the sort of lyrical content that I find problematic are either I'm just playing a character, he isn't real, or I'm just holding a mirror up to my reality. And if you've never lived my kind of life, then you can never understand. Some rappers actually try to use both justifications at the same time. Hello, 50 Cent, which doesn't make much sense. Either you're fictional or you're real. Can't really be both. Now, Clearly, since he has actually been happily married to Kim for over 30 years, Ice Cube is playing a character, at least when it comes to his more self-aggrandizing sexual references. But other than that, I don't detect any subtle, ironic distancing. Now, I'm thinking at the moment about Andrew Tate, this um, online influencer who's uh, recently been arrested in Romania after an online beef with Greta Thunberg. I bet Andrew Tate loves Ice Cube. I bet he takes his stuff at face value. I don't think that Ice Cube has exactly been a useful 
role model for young men at a formative age. I think Trev probably has more details for which to offer a rebuttal, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let me have my say. I will say, in defence of this one, that Ms Toy, our guest artiste on the chorus, she does seem as up for the jiggy-jiggy every bit as much as Mr Cube, to wit, the call and response of the chorus. She's all like, put your back into it. He's all, put your ass into it. One assumes they are alluding to the specific sexual activity that the Bloodhound Gang recommended as a way for both parties to watch the X-Files, but that's just a hunch. But whatever it is, it feels consensual, so I'm not going to get too prim. The musical groove is good. I can see that it would work well as a soundtrack to getting one's grind on in the club. And faced with such slim pickings in the rest of this episode, I'll grasp any straw that I can find. Trev, please rebut. Yeah, I think you've done gangster rap a little bit hard because there was an awful lot of gangster rap that was actually very positive and was about anti-violence. And it's easy to get lost in it. I referenced the once it became materialistic, that once it became about selling records rather than about getting a message out there, you know, that's, I, I don't think that's gangster rap's fault. I think that's global consumer capitalism's fault, which is perhaps a bigger issue to deal with than we've got time for in this podcast. But, you know, I, th- I think a lot of gangster rap was very, very positive. And before it became part of the money game, it was certainly more positive than it became. I, totally get you with the direction that rap music went in uh i think jay-z is very similar to that musically it, it softened things and it really did then seem to just be about shifting units as opposed to having a message i think jay-z has done some great proper gangster rap and then i think he realized that he could just make money from it and he did that equally like i said in my bit man's got to get paid there's not one with earning money so I think the cliche is don't hate the player, hate the game. And I, I think that um, holds water in this case. Fair comment. And it's interesting that you're talking about Jay-Z, which is bringing to mind comparisons between Jay-Z and Ice Cube. I can listen to Jay-Z all day. I don't care what his lyrical content is. His flow is just so outstanding that I'm just in awe of the way he constructs his rhythms with his voice. Ice Cube... From what I've heard, I don't get that feeling. With the album, that uh, The Predator, that's got Today Was A Good Day On, I will lend you my copy of it. And we will reach a common accord by the time we get to record the next episode. Perhaps it's not smutty. Perhaps they're putting up a shed. You know, put your back into it. Put your ass into it. Put your back into it. Would that both the Chuckle Brothers were still with us because they could have done a novelty version of it, like doing that in that style. To me, to you, put your back into it. Yet it would have been a third fantastically well-produced novelty record in a row. (laughs) Right then, on to our final decade. This is Blank Space by Taylor Swift, the seventh of 21 top 10 hits that Taylor Swift has had thus far between 2009 and last year, peaked at number four. Today, and this surprised me, Taylor Swift's only actually had two number one singles in the UK. Look What You Made Me Do in 2017, an anti-hero last year. But her last nine albums have all reached number one. Blank Space was taken from the second of those albums, 1989. And of the tracks from that album which charted, it was only topped by Shake It Off, which had already reached number two. 
like several tracks on the 1989 album. It was co-written by Taylor Swift and two highly successful Swedish songwriters and producers, Max Martin and Shellback. The video has had over 3 billion views on YouTube, which currently makes it the 23rd most viewed music video of all time, although Shake It Off is actually still slightly ahead. Nick, Taylor Swift... So having seen the list for this week, it was a blessed relief when I got to the 2010s and realised that we actually had a decent pop record to talk about this week. So I love Taylor Swift. I've been a Taylor Swift fan since day one, since buying Love Story, buying the first album. One of those artists that has a new album, you just buy it immediately, all the way along. 1989 is probably with maybe the exception of Evermore, my favourite album of hers. She was already kind of making the move towards pop and away from country with the previous album, Red, with We Are Never Getting Back and Never Ever Getting Back Together and I Knew You Were Trouble, and then went full out Max Martin pop on 1989. But she's such a great songwriter that could turn her hand to any genre, I think, and make it sound fantastic. When she went folky on uh, Folklore and Evermore, is fabulous and even being a massive taylor swift fan i would say blank space is if you if you only left me on a desert island with one of her songs this is probably the one that i would take she just developed a reputation in 2013 2014 of being a little bit of a romantic bonfire she'd gone through a string of very crash and burn very hot but very short relationships with the likes of calvin harris harry styles taylor lautner tom hiddleston and Jake Gyllenhaal, which we later found out all about in her 2022 single, All Too Well, the long version of that. We learned a lot about her relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal there, I think. So she'd come out of this, and then, of course, she did what Taylor Swift always does and just wrote a very self-effacing song about how she was a nightmare, you know, to, to be with. It's a superb pop record. I think that almost everything that she does is fabulous. And, you know, and you forget she's still only... I think, what, 33 years old, I think. She feels like she's been around forever, but she's incredibly young. And just has a, what an incredible back catalogue of superb albums. And also one of those people over time has become somebody that it is acceptable to like, irrespective of your other musical preferences. You know, I know people who like Taylor Swift, but don't really like any other music of that type. And to me, that is just testament to the quality of the songwriting. Pure and simple. Just writes incredibly well-constructed pop records, of which, to me, Blank Space is arguably the best. Wow. Go on then, Trev. You share any part of that enthusiasm? <laughs> so you you were wanting conflict, and I, oh. I can't bring it, I'm afraid. I think like the key thing of what Nick says there is, is the acceptable to like moment with Taylor Swift. I didn't initially, she sort of crept into my consciousness, but I have been won over by Tay-Tay, and I think most of us have now. I've not spoken to anybody. He goes, ugh, her... And I can't think of many other artists that that goes for, you know, like if you think of big artists, like the people, you, you could toss a coin with most of them, whether people will like them or hate them, Ed Sheeran, Coldplay, Nickelback, Metallica, you know, there's all kinds of artists that you could talk about who got massive, whereas Tay-Tay, most people seem to be nodding their head and going, yeah, you know, and that sort of first dawned on me when I started working at a place called Monty's, there's... um 
a chap there uh, who's one of our listeners, actually. And I, I chat with all the staff there about music. But the bar's manager is a real muso and he's similar to me. He likes stuff heavier than I do. And I, I like heavy, heavy metal. But most of the bands he likes are really, I'll back away from the mic and go, and he like indeed sings along when I'm DJing to most songs with that style and in my early days when I was sort of getting my feet under the table in a rock bar at the end of the night I put on a Taylor Swift record and I was like oh I might, I might be in trouble for this this might go down awfully and it went off and I was like well I mean I'm I was expecting it to be well received and Andy my mate was like well, yeah, of course this is going to go down brilliantly. It's a brilliant song. It might not be a very Monty song, but it's an absolute masterpiece. And, I, and that was kind of like a moment for me when I went, yeah, it's happened. She's fully got there. She is. She's won us over. Like when this came out, it wasn't for me. And this this song particularly isn't for me. It's not the kind of music I like, but it is superb. I deliberately didn't watch the video for the first few goes at this because I didn't want how Taylor looks to sway me. And I will freely admit that it would have done. She's everything about Taylor Swift is amazing. And so fortunately the performance and sound of this is pop perfection. I'm not in love with the mumble syllabalistic delivery of the opening bit. And it may have actually thinking about it time-wise that may have helped popularize that style of singing, which I really don't like, but Taylor Swift's magnificent. I don't own this and I won't buy this to play but I own a lot of Taylor Swift songs uh, and I do play a lot of Taylor Swift songs. As soon as I've paid my tax for last year, because that's really slapped me sideways, I'm going to buy a new album. It will be the first Taylor Swift album I've bought. I've been thinking about Taylor Swift albums for a while, but I'm going to give it a crack. And yeah, what an absolute hot moment. Well, I am one of what turns out to be the large number of people around the planet who completely misheard one of the lyrics in blank space. Namely, when she sings... Got a long list of ex-lovers, which I heard as all the lonely Starbucks lovers. So I, I genuinely did not know what the lyric was until I checked the lyrics a few days ago. When Blank Space came up, I thought, oh, it's the Starbucks song. So it's good to have that mistake cleared up at long last. My interest in Taylor Swift, I think it's fair to say it's waxed and waned over the years. I, I did prefer her earlier country-ish stuff like Love Song and uh, You Belong With Me. And then I love that remake that she did of All Too Well that just goes on forever and ever and ever. I'm mean, completely mesmerising. Also, I really enjoyed her two 2020 lockdown albums, Folklore and Evermore. thought those were great. When she's more pop, I tend to pay less attention. But even when I'm paying less attention she retains my respect as a good pop star, a very good pop star. And this is a really smart and effective pop song. It's a very knowing take on her media image at the time as a scary girlfriend. By adopting that persona and by having fun with it, she very neatly debunks it and kind of closes the case. I'm going to talk about the video. I make a point of only listening to the video as my last listen to the track before we do the recording so it doesn't influence me. This was a welcome example of a video which does complement the track, particularly like the way that it sort of depicts the relationship going sour halfway through the song, because that amplifies what the lyrics merely hint at, and it amplifies it in a way that doesn't actually detract from the song as a whole. 
I'm pleased, very pleased, this isn't the selection. This kind of vindicates my decision not to cheat with the randomizer because the 2010s are in a really deep hole right now, scores-wise. I am hoping that the one saving grace of this challenging selection is that blank space will pull the 2010s back into the running and they deserve to be back in the running the video actually at the time it just shows one of her relationships in real time Uh, was that the guy that terribly handsome model forgotten his name now that was a joke i would say that a relationship (laughs) lasted three minutes oh there's hope for me yeah no the guy in the video is bono it's Freddy out, Freddy and the Dreamers, isn't it? Did you not recognise him? <laughs> Whatever you called him, Lincoln, Manchild Nincompoop. Manchild Nincompoop, yes. Um, I'm going to take your votes, Nick. Let's start with your votes, please. It's tricky this week. So, top points to the 2010s. That was the easiest decision we've had so far for Taylor Swift. Uh, second place, the 70s. Elvis is my boy. And then the rest of them can get in the sea. Is that not how it works? You know it's not how it was. We have to lead oh. by example. Oh. So our listeners are going to be facing the same quandary. Right you are. I'll give my final point to the 1960s. And we can all let bygones be bygones. I love you. Most hated. I'm really sorry. I don't really like a lot of these, but I'm going to go for the only one that I really had to force myself never to listen to again, which is Ice Cube from the 2000s. I can't believe I put zig and zag above something else, but there we are. <laughs> you put zig and zag above an actual hip-hop artist. Uh, actual, but yeah, well, I know. Well, I, I'm, I'm very I'm very sorry about that. You're going to tell me in a minute that zag was played by Simon Climey out of Climey Fisher, aren't you? That's going to ruin it forever. Go on then, Trev. Let's have yours. So when these first came up, I was, I think, like you guys, oh, this is a weird week. There's some stinkers in there. But having listened to them, I, I think this is a, a surprisingly strong week. Like I, there, <laughs> there are tunes in here that I go, yeah, there's not much that I love, but the track that I'm putting at number one is the Toy Dolls because I think it's a perfect execution of silliness. And I've got a lot of time for silliness when it's done well. I think it's really well done. You know, you're not going to sit and stroke your beard and go, what a fine, outstanding piece of musical contribution that is. But I think for Daphnis, Really well done. Second, no problem, Taylor Swift. I had, I had a problem, really, putting Toy Dolls over Taylor. But I've gone with this because whilst I think it's perfect pop, for me, pop music needs a bit of a party. And I think Taylor's party bangers are a better shout for uh, a number one. And I'm sure that one will come along before long. Whereas, like, the Toy Dolls only had one shot. Taylor will be back with a hat trick. So there we go. Third place, it was zig and zag until i found out it was eric murillo and he's just too awful and so they make way for ice cube now i'd said i didn't give elvis a free pass because he was elvis i can't really give ice cube a free pass because he's ice cube but i think this is a slightly better and certainly more important pop record this is so much hip-hop slash r&b has been influenced by this type of thing that ice cube was doing for better or for worse in my mind's for worse Nevertheless, uh, Ice Cube for number three. There's no shame in last place in this because I actually think it's a strong week. My least favourite is, though, Freddie and the Dreamers because of the spoken word bit. Awful. Interesting. Very divergent set of votes this week. Apart from the track that I'm obviously going to make my number one, Taylor Swift. 
for the 2010s, uh, light years ahead of the rest of the pack for me. Weirdly, my number two, I've ranked this higher than you, Trev, because it's a solid groove which bangs in the club. I'm going to put Ice Cube as my number two. I actually enjoyed watching the video because it was the censored radio version and it was I found it easy going for my delicate PC ears. So number two for Ice Cube. I hadn't decided at the start of this recording whether Elvis Presley or the Toy Dolls were going to get my number three. And it's a very, very close call. I'm going to give the number three, the one point to Elvis Presley because it does make me feel an emotion. And it must have got something about it to make me do that. Whereas the Toy Dolls, fun at the time, I get no enjoyment from it now at all. It just leaves me completely cold. So it doesn't quite deserve that point. My most bad and most hated is Zig and Zag. Here are the results of our votes. So in last position with minus one point altogether, that is Zig and Zag from the 90s. In fifth position, with zero points, because it had a one and a minus one, they cancel each other out. Zero points, Freddie and the Dreamers for the 60s. In fourth position, with two points, Ice Cube from the 2000s. Then jumping up to two decades in equal second position with three points apiece as Elvis Presley for the 70s, the Toy Dolls for the 80s. They were both on three points, five points ahead of them. Our current winner, eight points altogether, Taylor Swift for the 2010s. Well done to Taylor Swift. I hope someone will let her people know. That concludes our thoughts for this episode. I should remind you of the voting details. If you want to vote for the tracks in this episode, you can do so on Twitter at which decade tops or you can drop us an email that's which decade is tops at gmail.com on facebook leave a comment or drop us a message just search for which decade is tops pops on facebook you'll find us you need to specify just like what we did first second and third favorites in descending order of preference plus your most bad and hated or at least your least favorite and if you have any additional comments they're more than welcome and they may be read out next time your voting deadline is 6pm UK time on Wednesday, the 18th of January. Well done for making it through this challenging selection. As soon as we go off air, I'm going to tell Trevor Nick what the next selection is. You have nothing to worry about, listeners. <laughs> we look forward to seeing you again on episode six. Do we have to fade out to the tune of Old Lang Syne now? <laughs> It's a bit late for that. Goodbye. See you next time. Come on. Which decade is Tops for Pops?